Good morning. Great to be with you. Greetings from the south side of Chicago. I'm going to be reading from uh, Psalm 113. And I'll just read through the whole psalm if you want to follow along. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of gathering uh, before you as your people, being called by you to know you, to respond to the way that you have revealed yourself to us. The grace of it is, is too much for us. Lord, you've also blessed us with uh, just a clear provision of your word where its message cannot be mistaken. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the way that you are unfolding it in our midst, in our hearts. We thank you for your Holy Spirit present with us making things understood, making things clear, comforting us. And we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and his death and burial and resurrection and all that it means for who we are as people created in your image and called to live now, proclaiming you in this world. And we just pray, Lord, that this morning these would not be some ethereal truth or something that is hard to connect to, but um, resonates deeply for each of us. We thank you for, um, Lord, just all that you are to us and your promise to be with us. And we pray that you would be with us now as we spend time thinking about your word and about who you are as it relates to uh, missions in the world and our role in that as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This uh, psalm is one of my favorites. Um, it's one that I uh, read often and think a lot about. It's a, it's a psalm that is a command, uh, ultimately, simply for us to praise God. And uh, it is, it, it's sometimes read as um, an encouragement, you know, praise the Lord, this little sort of adulation, praise the Lord. But it's, but it's really not written that way. It's really written as a command. The presumption is, if you and I are God's people, then we have no business not praising the Lord. And so, in the first part of the psalm, it's repeated, this command, praise the Lord. And then, from really verses 4 through the end of the psalm, the psalmist shifts from this command or this call for us to praise the Lord to uh, the reason why, in this particular context, we are invited to be people who praise the Lord. If you, if you stop and think about it just a little bit, when, when you think about, well, why do we praise the Lord? What is it about Him that leads us to be people who want to gather together and proclaim His name? There are certain things that come you know, readily to mind. He's a gracious God. He's a forgiving God. He's an omnipotent God. 
Um, he is, he is, you know, he reigns above the heavens. There, there are aspects of his, his beauty and his transcend, transcendence and all of these things that we very closely associate in a very uh, sort of quick heart response to say, yeah, these are reasons that we should praise the Lord. The psalmist in this psalm has really, in a sense, something slightly different in mind. And if I could summarize what he's saying, he essentially says that you and I ought to praise the Lord because he loves the poor. Because he loves the vulnerable. Because he loves the broken. We see him pictured in verse 4 as a God that is transcendent. That he is great. That he is high above the heavens. That he is beyond anything that we can really imagine or comprehend. In a sense, beyond something. We can't even relate to him in his transcendence. Because he is so awesome. But out of this position of starting to say, praise God and note that he is, he is uh, above all and transcendent, the psalmist begins to tell us a little bit about how God acts even though he is so other than we are. And it says, first of all, that he looks. He looks down on the heavens and the earth in verse 6. And we know because of the later context that he, what he is looking in the direction of is, is a whole lot of drama, a whole lot of difficulty. The poor and the needy and the childless, the broken, those who are in the dirt and those who are in the ashes have his attention. In 2004, my wife and I, after being on staff at Sunshine uh, for, for five years, we, along with our kids, uh, I think we had five at the time, we now have seven or eight, <laughs> moved into the south side of Chicago, um, into a community where you could definitely say we were the other. Chicago remains one of the country's most segregated cities. Uh, our neighborhoods are often exceed 98% when they're African-American neighborhoods. And we moved into the, into the community and uh, moved into a, a part of the, uh, of the city of Chicago that has some pretty significant difficulties, a great deal of poverty, a great deal of brokenness, and not too many white folks. We moved in and uh, began dealing with just all of the things that you would deal with as neighbors, and it was a transition. Um, I was telling uh, some of the folks that were with us last night with the, um, uh, with the uh, high school group that, that Sunshine used to be in a neighborhood called Cabrini Green, which some of you will remember because it was in the news a lot in the 80s and the 90s. And the city of Chicago tore that neighborhood down, and so we moved the whole ministry, uh, and we moved our family into the heart of the south side of Chicago where many, many other uh, relocated public housing families were, were going. And we began to rebuild uh, the ministry. And, you know, when you uh, live kind of face-to-face uh, in the midst of poverty, it, it begins to sort of shift how you sort of read different scriptures and, and think about different things. And one of the things that I began to realize is that um, we have as people, a fundamental sort of uh, reaction to look away from those who have great need. I mean, what are you going to do, right, when faced with someone who has overwhelming need? 
You, you feel it when you pull off the off-ramp, you know, and there's the guy with the cardboard sign. You know him. He's everywhere, right? And it says something like, we'll work for food or homeless, can you help, or something like that. And, and as you get down to the end of the on-ramp and that person standing on the corner is getting closer and closer and the light changes and you stop at that corner and now the person is right there outside of your window. You know, you think, what happens to your eyes in that moment? All of a sudden, the person sitting in the passenger seat really does need personal eye contact for the conversation that you're having, right? Or the radio's got to be adjusted. Because when you're, when you're faced with such sort of proximity of great need, it's, it, it, the, the, our natural bent is to look away because we're overwhelmed by it. But we see in the psalm that God is not like us, that God is not looking away from those who have great need, from whom the burden that they bear is absolutely overwhelming. It says that the Lord looks from the heavens down, and he is looking, as we see in verse 7, in the direction of the poor and the needy. And so the, one of the first things that we see about why we ought to praise God, God, our glorious God, is a missional God who looks in the direction of the need, but he does not just look. It's not like a gawker slowdown on the highway where there's something bad that's happened and you know people tend to sort of slow down and watch but keep on going and at least in Chicago, it backs up all the traffic. You know, if there's an accident on one side of the highway, the other side of the highway actually slows down because people like to look at accidents, but they don't like to stop, so it just slows them. God is not like this. He does not just look, but it says in verse 7 that he responds. It says that he raises the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. And you know, the, the, um, the, the difficulty of, of going into other cultures and going into places with great need, you, as you can imagine, was faced by our family. We'd been ministering Cabrini, but we didn't live in Cabrini. But when we moved to the south side, um, we, uh, we were neighbors. And we had school choices. And we had um, Pappy's Cut-Rate Liquor Store at the end of the block where all the homeless people would gather after they had raised a few dollars. And our alley was the toilet. And when you were in such proximity to that, trying to figure out not only how to see but how to respond was very difficult. And I was reading a book that talked about justice as we tried to think about what it means to be people who are ministering for the sake of the gospel and to be thinking with a priority that the Scripture has about not only gospel proclamation, but its relationship to mercy and to justice. And I was reading and I was directed by someone, uh, an author, to read a verse that I clearly had read many, many times uh, out of Luke chapter 6. And uh, Luke, Luke chapter 6 in verse 30, our Lord is talking and, and it begins, give to everyone who begs from you. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in the suburbs and I read Luke chapter 6, verse 30, the first part of the verse that says, give to everyone who begs from you, it didn't really sting. (laughs) I'm not sure I could think of anyone who'd begged from me growing up. But now I was living on 46th and Cottage Grove at the end of the block from Pappy's Cut Rate Liquor Store where there were lots of people begging. And I thought, Jesus, surely. This can't be the kind of response he needs. Let me read a little more context. 
It's got to get easier. And then the next part of the verse says, and from the one who takes your goods, do not demand them back. Now, the week that I was reading this, um, the previous weekend, our home had been burglarized twice (laughs) in the same weekend. The first time, a couple of knucklehead teenagers had come in and uh, they had... They had uh, been ravaging through the front of the house, but my family was home. My wife was home, and my kids were home, and uh, my wife walked in on them and startled them, and they turned around, and they ran out the door, and they just only had a couple of things uh, in tow, but one of them were the keys to our home. And um, so we were flustered by that. Well, about 36 hours later, before we'd had the sense to change the locks immediately, they let themselves back in. My son, who was about 12 or 13 at the time, was there with our three little ones that were one, two, and three. The little ones were sleeping, and uh, Jared heard a little commotion upstairs, and he thought, well, maybe mom's home, and he started to go up the stairs, and here these two kids are coming down the stairs. And fortunately, in God's grace, they, they hightailed it. They turned around when they saw him, and they just ran out uh, rather than having any confrontation, although tucked underneath their arm was, uh, again, a number of things, uh, including the brand-new Xbox the kids had been given, and uh, out the door they went down the street. Now, fortunately, sitting on the front steps right next door um, were uh, some teenage girls, and it turns out that those teenage girls knew these two guys because they went to the same high school, and they didn't know their last name, but I had their first name, and I had the school where they went to, so no problem, right? And then I'm reading this scripture that says, and from the one who takes your goods, do not demand them back. And I just thought, you can't be serious. Surely, if I read a little more context, it will get me out of this. But if you start in verse 27, Jesus says, but, to those, but, but I say to those who will hear, love your enemies. It only gets worse. I decided that the thing to do was to, rather than react right away, was to spend some time pondering on what in the world the Lord could possibly mean by asking me, asking us as his people, to live like this. And it didn't take me very long as I began reflecting and I sort of slowed down in my presumptions about what I ought to do or not do in this particular situation to ask myself this question, which did I love more? Those two knucklehead teenagers or the Xbox that they walked out the door with. And i got to tell you, it was no contest. I clearly loved the Xbox more than those two kids. And that was a wake-up call for me, to begin realizing just sort of how I think about what it means to be someone commissioned by the Lord, called by the Lord. I'm, I'm the urban minister type, and I don't even like these kids. And to be honest, not only did I like them or love them, I didn't care about them. Not really, not in the moment, not when push came to shove. And I decided that I needed to take a significant amount of time and, and wrestle with what in the world the Lord could possibly mean. And this is, a, this is in some ways, a, it is a difficult passage. Um, and I'm not going to try to completely unpack that, but let me just express to you a couple of the things that I think come out of, of this and this connection between what the Lord is demonstrating himself to be like in Psalm 113 and inviting us to be like in Luke chapter 6. 
That is that it is very, very easy for us to love the creation more than the creator. It is very easy for us to love stuff that the Lord has created and entrusted to us more than those who are created in his image. That is just an easy default position for us to find ourselves in. I think that it is a part of what it means for us to be broken. And, and, and when we really seriously begin thinking about responding to those who have great need and what that need is like, one of the mistakes that we make is that we begin to think that those who are poor, that their fundamental need is for material things because it's the easiest thing to relate to. Did you, you know, if you, I actually did begin this process of committing to give to anybody who asked me for something. And it's picked up some nuance over the years, but you know, one of the twisted things that I figured out in my own heart, and I saw it in people around me as well, is that you know what happens if people ask you for money and you give them a dollar? You know what they do generally? They go away. And if that's what we want secretly in our heart, it's a great way to respond. You can actually pay people to go away. Isn't that amazing? If you're downtown and you watch panhandlers, I assure you, you will see people do this. It is far easier to deal with people by giving them a buck and wishing them well than it is to spend time talking with them and getting to know them and understanding who they are. It's far more costly. And so what Jesus is getting at is undoing the inner brokenness of our heart And in essence, applying the truth of the gospel, that is that what he has given to us is supreme in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he invites us to embody that in very difficult and in very broken places. So in this passage of Psalm 113, we see that the Lord gives. I'm sorry, we see that the Lord looks and that we see that he responds. And then that he responds in such a way as to do something that changes the circumstance of those with whom he is engaged. That he does not just, in a sense, give to the poor, but he raises them out of their circumstance. And in verse 8, it says that he makes them sit with princes, with the princes of the people. He sees, he responds, he changes the circumstance. And there's a very interesting nuance on the end of this that I think that what verse 8 is getting at is that he responds in such a way as to affirm the dignity of the people to whom he is responding. Work among the poor makes it very, very clear that it's easy to undermine people's dignity in the midst of doing ministry. It's easy to do that. In fact, it's hard not to do it in some ways. There are some guys at the Chalmers Center, some of you may be familiar uh, because I know Morgan has had the book and passed it out to some of the kids called When Helping Hurts. And they've thought significantly about this, about what it means for us as the church to be engaged among the poor within the context of our missions. And they have taught and thought a lot about this notion of changing people's circumstances while affirming dignity. And here are a few of the insights that they have that Fundamentally, our response in missions, particularly missions among the poor, must be intensely relational. Intensely relational. That it is not, it cannot be transactional if we hope to have um, the kind of long-term impact and not just sort of surface gloss uh, that, that is really the heart of the gospel. That we have to go deep and not quick. 
part of our desire and our, and our uh, just enjoyment of having uh, a relationship between Sunshine in Chicago and Hickson, Presbyterian Church, is that we're beginning to see this relationship form. This will be the third time that the group has come back. And when I sat down with Morgan, he rattled off the names of a few of my children, which I thought was, was really impressive, you know. And I talked to my wife this morning, and she's out of town right now, so she didn't even know where I was. And, and uh, I said, um, you know, I was at the Lusks. And she's like, oh, you're with Morgan. That's amazing. That's great. And those, the beginning to form the relational connections where we begin to understand each other are the mechanisms to really long-term transformation. And, of course, it's hard for people from the church here to know individual people within our community on the south side of Chicago, but we live there, and we know them, just as the other two ladies that we heard from live there and know the people. And through the relationship, and in a sense through the mediated relationship that we have with you, we can go deep and not quick in terms of our outreach And finally, one of the observations that the guys at the Chalmers Center at Covenant Seminary there make, or Covenant College make, is that uh, money is actually not the hardest resource for any of this. The hardest resource is time and faithfulness through all of the drama that naturally comes with missions, and particularly missions in very, very broken places. That, That we essentially are inviting, when the Lord directs us, whether it's in the Luke passage or in the uh, Psalm 113, he, he directs us to be like him into going into these places and to engaging people in a relational way with the gospel that, that it is very, very messy. I heard from both of the ladies in the Sunday school about how it's a very slow process. This is very much against what you and I like as Americans. We like things that are instant gratification. We're wired for that. We're constantly called and called... Uh, sort of cultivated by our culture to appreciate that which gets a quick response and a measurable impact. And this kind of work in difficult places and, and places around the world is not quick. There's tremendous, tremendous difficulty, tremendous drama. In fact, we are effectively inviting drama into our lives and difficulty into our lives. But isn't this what the God who is transcendent above all has done? I mean, who among us has gone to the point of giving our children, not just for service, but for death? There there is no comparison to what the Lord has done on our behalf and the graciousness that we have in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. One of the questions that I think this, this passage begs when you simply just read through it and you make these basic observations that that our Lord is, is looking intentionally, that he's responding intentionally, that he's changing people's circumstance, um, and, and that he's doing it in a way that affirms dignity. One of the obvious questions, maybe there's a couple of obvious questions for me anyway, uh, one is, um, really? Like, is he really doing that? I mean, is this just something that we sing about? Or is he actually doing it? Yes, I would think we would all say, yes, God is doing this. So then the natural question that follows on that is, how? How is he doing it? And the answer is that he's doing it through his people. How does he look and see? How does he respond? How does he reach out and touch people? How does he change their circumstance? 
through the proclamation of the gospel and the coming alongside of people and relate. He does it through the church. He does it through you and I. Now, he could, maybe for one or two of you he did, send the angel Gabriel to proclaim his son and for you to come into the most powerful message that he could could give you, which is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But I sort of doubt that's how he did it. The most powerful and transformative and amazing thing that he could do in your life and in mine is to make known the glorious truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he does not tend to do that through angels. He does that through his people, through you and I. And I would just suggest that if sort of the highest value of what he could bring to us, which is the proclamation of the gospel, is through people like you and I, that that the cup of cold water and the shelter and the clothing and the nurturing relationship and the sitting through the difficulty of people who have been abused, who have been rejected, who have been molested, who have been through all of the... In just incredible difficulty of the world that we live in, that he would also not normally do that through angels. He would do that through you and I. And so, yes, this is happening, and it's happening through God's people. And for this, we ought to praise the Lord. I want to suggest that he does this And that as we think about being a part of this, another one of the questions that comes up about this passage, I think, is, is this simply a spiritual application? Because clearly, God's interest in the poor and the broken and the vulnerable is met at its its deepest level, at its most fundamental level, through the proclamation of the gospel. And the idea that he delivers us out of the dirt and out of the ash, out out of the brokenness of our sin is so prevalent and so powerful in the Scripture. In verse 8 where it says to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people, how can we not think about Hebrews 2 where it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I brother. What an amazing, amazing thing. That the salvation that we are granted is not something that minimizes our own dignity or makes you feel dirty or less but rather brings us into all that we were designed to be. And so I would say clearly that this passage has this very obvious spiritual content, but we must be very careful that we do not dismiss it as being strictly a spiritual content. You cannot read the intent of the psalm without recognizing that that spiritual reality for which we were created and designed also has a material manifestation, that we were not designed to live in brokenness and destitution that we were not designed to live in the ashes and the dirt, that we were not designed to to, to be barren and lonely. And so the psalmist says elsewhere that of the many blessings of God is that he sets the lonely in families. It It is a powerful, powerful invitation for us in response to the gospel to be a part of this missional work that God is doing in the world. There are ways that we, uh, I believe, need to do this from a practical standpoint as individuals. That, that many of us in those individual interactions with that homeless person or the guy by the side of the road or the immigrant family that moves in next door, that there are, there are ways that we must wrestle with the implications of how the gospel is lived out for us in those settings. But it also has to happen as families. 
you know, one of the most powerful things that we've done with my children is, is to engage them in our, in our acts of service and in our giving. I love it that you're sending your children on a missions team. I want to invite the parents next time. That we do this as families is a beautiful thing. That we give. Some of you, your children are old enough that as you talk about sponsoring a missionary or supporting someone, that you could engage them and you could say, where is God leading your heart? And how how could we as a family get around that? Because as we think about individuals and families, then we think about missional engagement not just in a direct hands-on way, but we do also think about in this mediated way. Not all of you can come to Chicago. That's fine. In fact, it's probably good that you don't all come to Chicago. But there is this mediated way through your children and even through Sunshine, the organizations like the other missionaries that are here, that, that you can engage, but it takes more than a check. In a sense, a check is the easiest thing. It takes the check. But it takes relational intensiveness and intentionality beyond that. So we do it as individuals, we do it as families, and then of course, in some ways most importantly, we do it as a church community. And so thinking about the engagement, and I was you know, delighted to see the pictures of the missionaries around the world and the maps of the international missionaries on one side and the U.S. missionaries. On the other. It's a delight to see that and to know that, that, that your church is involved in that. My guess is some of you know a lot about that and you know the missionaries and some of you really don't. You're a little bit disconnected. And I would just encourage you to invite you through the body, through your church congregation, to have conversations about what people are doing in different places around the world and look for what resonates with you. One of the things that we do when the children come to Chicago is that we expose them to the city, not just for what Sunshine is doing in our particular area of the city, because God is at work in a many different ways around the city. And so we expose the young people to that in hopes that you can begin to see something resonating. I really do believe that God calls us into missions, all of us, in some way. And that he's most likely to do that out of something that resonates deeply with the way that he has designed you. When people come to Chicago and if they stand in line at a soup kitchen and and serve food and they hate it, I say, don't go back. (laughs) Look for something in your experience. Do something else. But find a way that you're wired that resonates strongly with a way that God is powerfully at work in the world. I'll just close by suggesting this, that for us to take this seriously, to recognize that this is the God that that we worship that transcends the other barrier to go into difficult places among the broken and, and effectively to do this in a practical way through us as his people is going to cause us to give some things up. As you can imagine, moving into the neighborhood has changed my life and it's changed my children's lives. That's not for everyone, but I do think that missional engagement calls us to give some of these things up. We have a value around comfort and safety that are not really compatible with this passage of Scripture. Because comfort and safety are American values, and they're in themselves fine things, but they're not really Christian values. And as we wrestle with the implications of living out the gospel our comfort and safety will get in the way of those things. Your comfort and your safety are secure in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. And if we live that way,
And whether it's following the Luke 6 passage or whether it's following the Psalm 113 passage, we will find great joy and great contentment in serving the God that calls us by name and rescues us from our brokenness as we go into very difficult and unsafe and uncomfortable places. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace that you have bestowed on us by inviting us to know you and to proclaim the gospel in your name, not just where we can rely on ourselves, but where we must rely on you. Give us courage, Lord, not because of our abilities, but a gospel courage, knowing that you are with us and will never abandon us. We pray in Jesus' name.